0: You're listening to Women Heard, presented by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie Hochheiser-Ilkovich. And today I'm talking to Melody Lee, who's the vice president of brand marketing at Herman Miller and the chief communications officer for New York Women in Communications. Melody, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Julie, happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So excited to hear about your career and also to talk to you about what it's like to be on the board of directors at New York Wiki. So we are going to start this conversation. We always ask the same question to get us started. And that is, what do you think the biggest challenge facing women in the workplace is today?
1: Well, I think the challenges are different country by country. So I can speak, I guess, to the unique challenges of being in the US. I think one of the the bigger challenges is that there is an infrastructure that is needed to support women in the workplace that doesn't yet exist, right? The policy has not caught up to the politics of, of ensuring that women have what they need to be successful in the workplace. So while a lot of progress has been made over the last few decades, still so much needs to happen outside of the workforce in the policy world to get us the kind of uh, safety net and structure that's required
0: for us to be successful absolutely what a difficult challenge that's so beyond beyond our control <laughs> but we're all definitely working towards it and that obviously became so much more present during the pandemic in terms of some of the things that needed needed to be done um no, thank you thank you so much for sharing that we are on this Podcasts talking about these challenges, almost collecting them to hopefully start working towards, um, you know, working together on on some potential solutions. I want to hear about your career path. I want to hear the whole thing as much as you want to share from literally college to internships to jobs. So interesting in terms of your transition from um, in-house agency work to working at iconic brands. So we'd love for you to walk us through that journey. Sure. You know, I like to start with the way that
1: I was raised. I was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas by immigrants from Taiwan. Um, Immigrants who were converted to uh, evangelical Christianity. This is going to be relevant in just a minute. Um, And so therefore was raised in a household where a woman's highest calling was to be a mother. Right, And so for almost 18 years of my life, while education was very important, there was nothing more important in my future than becoming a mother and running a household. Um, And so I say this to illustrate the fact that when I graduated from college, I had almost no ambitions of being in the working world or being a professional woman. I remember saying to my husband at the time, If you need me to work, I will to support the family if we need the income, but otherwise I'm here to be your wife and be a mother to our kids and do the best that I can because this is just the way I was raised, right? And so again, I say all this to say that I look back on my career and I'm still somewhat stunned by the fact that I've been in the working world for so long and had the degree of success that I have had because I never expected to be here to begin with as a little girl. Right. Uh, so after graduating from college, I uh, started in PR. So my first job was a was with a small Texas agency that eventually became acquired by Hill and Knowlton. So I started off in the world of of global corporate communications and crisis work, um, and really carved a niche in that world of crisis and financial communications. Sat in a lot of war rooms, eating a lot of junk food, just trying to get corporations through a crisis, a merger, an IPO, a proxy fight, you name it. That was the sort of work that I really cut my teeth on in comms. So I spent a a little bit short of a decade in that line of work before one of my colleagues in that agency went to to be the head of public policy at General Motors. And that colleague brought me over in um, a contractor or consultant capacity until he became president of Cadillac which then launched my pivot, not only in-house, but from communications to marketing. So at that point I became the director of brand marketing for Cadillac, the iconic American car brand that's been around since 1902. And when I started there, I remember the sort of uphill battle of having to switch functions at the same time as learning a completely new industry, automotive, right? Just a very different world, a different vernacular, a different culture. I moved my family to Detroit at that point as well. So it was also learning to live in the North for for the first time in a real winter for the first time. <laughs> the hardest part that of your journey, journey maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. That first winter, I think I, my husband and I were like, are we really going to survive this? Um, so there was a lot of change in that time period. I spent that decade um, working at Cadillac before at the end of that, that time, moving from the marketing position to running a business unit called Book by Cadillac, which was the brand's vehicle subscription service um, that we had innovated as a marketing team, actually. So that business model had been born. That category actually was created by Cadillac, which we're really proud of. So I went to go run that as its own business unit and p um, before the decision was made for Cadillac to move from New York back to Detroit. So I had spent three years in Detroit, the headquarters had moved to New York, I had moved again and then it was coming back. And at that point uh, we made the decision that um, we would stay in New York as a family and the brand went back to Detroit. That's when I decided to try my my hand at something new and I moved into the world of prestige beauty as as it's called. I wanted to learn the world of CPG and marketing in CPG but also stay in the premium segment working with the luxury consumer. And so I worked uh, at Shiseido for three years at that point on a brand that you may have heard of, Julie, which is Laura Mercier, Mm -hmm. and um, was uh, in charge of of brand strategy and management there. Um, My particular remit, though, was helping Laura Mercier enter new markets, in particular China, which was not being sold in at that point. So it was a completely different job for me, different, again, um, you'll hear... uh, you'll hear a theme as I talk about my career path that I, I really like to make myself as uncomfortable as possible. But that often means putting myself in a position where I am completely bewildered by the world that I'm sitting in. So all of a sudden, as you can imagine, I'm going from talking about horsepower and torque to talking about lipstick textures and payoff, right? Um, I'm talking, you know, going from this three-tier model of automotive and the way that it's distributed to the retail environment and beauty, right? So it just completely changed everything. And I remember telling my friends after my first month that it was like being on an alien planet, just in terms of the acronyms and the way that we were talking about the business and the and the industry. So I spent three years there and then decided to go back to the agency side, as you probably have seen. Uh, And at that point, there was this opportunity to join uh, an agency called Cameron PR. And I did it because Cameron is, was, and is the very best at what it does. And it was really intriguing to me to join a place where they had been focused on design communications for decades and been really good at it and built a really strong reputation in it. So I went over there to join as their COO. I worked in in a more operational uh, role rather than a client facing role, but it was really um, wonderful to be inculcated into the world of design and art and really start to to expand my knowledge in that space. And again, it's a premium, I still stayed in a premium segment, right? And um, working with, with primarily the prestige consumer, if you will. Uh, and so it was then about a year into the journey at Cameron that Herman Miller came calling. And for me, after spending a year in design communications and, and also, you know, just to tie it back to Cadillac, really loving, iconic American luxury brands, it was hard for me to turn down the opportunity to go in back in house at Herman Miller. Um, so that's where I joined this past March. And that's where I am.
0: That's amazing. What a journey. I love it. And I love that it's not just a straight line, but there are some, you know, recur- recurring themes and trends. I'm really fascinated by, you know, the what you brought up at the beginning, which I think is so important in terms of how you were raised and what your attitude, like going into the workforce was. Um, when did that shift? Like at what point? Because, you know, because you even said like, oh, I went to college. I'm like, oh, interesting. Like, why did you even go to college? Right? Or why, did that, you know, why did anyone pay for you to go to college if the expectation was like you don't necessarily need this, you know, anything beyond this education? But I'd be I'd love for you to share, you know, how that when that kind of shift, how it did, and and any, I'm assuming there were some challenges you faced along the way. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you know, even though my mom was a
1: stay-at-home mom, she was, she had her master's degree and she expected me to do the same. Both of my parents did. Um, they really fully believed in a, not only a college education, but a graduate education as well. So I got my master's degree in political science as well. Um, education was still really important to them, regardless of whether, I, you know, my, I used it in a professional sense, right? Um, but yeah, I would say that in you know, just a few months into my career at, at the firm that would eventually be acquired by Hill and Knowlton, I realized I really liked working. And I really liked being in a high-pressure, high-stakes environment, which is kind of exactly what crisis or transactional PR is like, right? And um, I felt that I could make a difference there, and I felt fulfilled. So it was only a few months into my professional journey that I thought I could do this for life. And I think, actually, I would like to.
0: <laughs> I love that so much. I mean, it's it's amazing, and it so, speaks so much to I think just to you as well, that it was just like, okay, I like this and I'm gonna do it. And not, you know, kind of maybe went away against a little bit everything you had been raised to do and (laughs) learned to do. So that's fabulous. No, that's really, really great. You follow you followed your you followed your gut and it brought you um, to this amazing place that you are today. I mentioned that you also sit on the New York Wiki Board of Directors, your chief communications officer. How did you get involved with New York Women in Communications, and then how did you decide you know, to make a larger commitment to the organization to sit on the board?
1: I first learned about New York Wiki in, two, I think it was 2017, when I was awarded what is now, I think, defunct, but uh, a Wiki Award. I don't know if you remember those. Um, And it was for, I think emerging and up and coming talent. And I was nominated by uh, Dusty Jenkins, who's now global head of public affairs at Spotify. And of course our current president on the New York Wiki board. Um, So Dusty just really um, graciously nominated me for that award. That was the first time I heard about it. It was a a great uh, ceremony. I remember Elaine Welteroth was one of my fellow nominees that year um and i just was really interested in this organization focused solely on women in communications right and advancing education mentorship and professional development for women in this field i think in my experience especially having been at cadillac in the american automotive industry which is or was at the time much more male dominated it never even really occurred to me to be part of a organization that was focused on on helping women stand out and helping women develop their careers in comms. Um, so after 2017, I was kind of lightly involved here and there, attended Matrix Awards and that sort of thing. Um, and it was last year that, that Dusty um, tapped me and, and said, would you ever consider joining the board? She and Liz Kaplow both. And um, it was at that point that I decided, you know, it is for, it is time for me to be, be able to give back uh, as someone who's had this 20-year career in marketing and communications, and you just heard my story, I just told you, I never expected to even have this career. I do not have five-year plans. I do not have 10-year plans. I don't. I didn't know that I'd be, I would even be sitting here talking to you about this today. Um, but what I did have was a lot of support and a lot of people championing me wherever I was. At every company there was somebody who said, we think you can do this job even when I thought I couldn't do the job, right? I had no business going out of PR into a marketing job, an executive level job at Cadillac, but somebody believed in me and that was the president of Cadillac at the time. And so why not be part of an organization that is finding a way to support women in the way that I've been supported? It's the least I can do.
0: Such an honor and such an incredible way to get involved. And um, it's it's really, amazing for you to, with everything else going on, and you're, you know, you have changed jobs throughout this time on your board, that you're able to make this commitment. How do you kind of make it work? Like, how do you find the time to do the extracurricular activities? I think I use that term very loosely, um, but I think that's one, um, you know, big hurdle that people have when trying to join professional organizations, getting more involved. It seems like another job and sometimes it really is another job. Um, So how do you kind of find that balance? How do you find the time? How do you decide what to do and maybe what's not worth it um, because you're also doing a full-time job and managing a family and all having a life, you know, all all the things. (laughs) You know, I don't think there's any secret, right? I I know that a lot of people probably have responses
1: where they have great tips um, for this sort of thing. I, there's just some weeks that are complete chaos. I mean, complete and utter chaos. I mean, this past week, my husband had COVID oh my uh, and we have, and we have two little boys, right? So it was on me to, to get them ready while well, my husband was in isolation. And I have a wonderful, very contributory husband who does more than his fair share of, of parenting and housework. Um, and so for him to sort of go down with COVID for a week, meant that I had to sort of pick up everything while trying not to miss a meeting at the same time, right? I mean, that was, it was, it was chaos, it was complete chaos. And I think, honestly, the best thing you can do for, for any woman who's struggling with this is to say, there's just gonna be weeks where you're just not your best at your job. And there's going to be weeks that you're just not at your best as a mother. And there are weeks that you're not gonna be at your best for all the organizations that you volunteer with. And that's okay something's got to give something has to be traded off in in each of these equations, but you need to be okay with that. Right. I think that's the only way forward. I don't think there is such thing as balance except to say that you have to trade something off every once in a while. Right. Right. Um, So I don't think there's a secret. I don't think that there's a tip. I think that there is a, I do think though that you will make time for the things that matter to you. Right. If reading matters to you, you'll find the 30 minutes where you're standing on a subway to read, or the 30 minutes that you can sneak before bedtime, right? Uh, If being on the board of New York Wiki matters, you'll scarf your lunch while you're looking at all the social media posts that need to go out, right? I also sit on another nonprofit board for Asian youth called Apex for Youth. But that one means also a lot to me personally, because of my upbringing, Um, and so I find the time, and sometimes that means it's in the evening, sometimes that means it's over the weekends, right, but I fully believe that if things matter to people, they'll fit it in somewhere.
0: Absolutely, I love that answer, I mean, we, you know, we used to talk about work-life balance, and now, especially in this podcast, we're like, we don't talk about work-life balance, we only talk about balance in terms of you are a whole person, and you, you know, and it's basically a pie chart, and depending on the day, different slices of pie, right, are different sizes, and sometimes, some of them are, they're going to, they're really going to vary. And sometimes you have zero to give to that, but eventually it all kinds of balances out. Like you are still a whole person. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) I like the pie. That's a good way to put it.
0: You, uh, you know, eventually you have to kind of at the end of the week, everything that needs to get done needs, gets done. That's, I mean, I, I love what you said about you know, it's hard to be like, oh, if you really make, if you really wanted to, you could, but I totally agree with you. And again, but sometimes it might be more and sometimes it might be less, like the example of reading a book, like some weeks you might have 15 minutes to read and you just do it to give yourself like a little bit of sanity, clarity, mental health. Do you have any advice, um, any other advice for anyone who's looking to get involved with New York Women in Communication or any other um, organization, similar organization or anything, you know, again, extracurricular, is it to, you know, continue your networking? Like you were able to get involved in this organization through connections, right? Um, any any other thoughts on ways that um, it's easy to get involved? Is it just going to that first event, that first meeting? I'd love to hear your thoughts since you um, have, really, have really found your passion.
1: I mean, I think any organization is looking for help, right? And so I think the best way in is not necessarily going to an event with the intention of networking, but instead offering help. Um, I think there's sometimes I think a misconception that you need to be officially affiliated, join a board, be an official volunteer. I just think that's necessarily true. I think in, in a couple of the organizations and startups that I'd, I'd advise or sit on the board for, it was all unofficial at first, right? Like, well, let me just take a look at your marketing plan or what are you working on um, for your next matrix awards? Can I comment on the press list? You know, I think it's, or can I just show up and, and help at this event, like whatever it is. I think getting involved can seem daunting unless you frame it as giving help. If you're offering help, it's very rare that someone in any organization will turn you down. They all need it, right? Especially nonprofit organizations. So. Um, for New York Wiki, I would just say, I, you know, we've some of our our board members started because they volunteered to write the Matrix Journal. or they said, "Give let me um, contribute a blog post or or let me help out at the Matrix Awards in person and in um, you know, moving talent around or something like that, right? So I would just say, like that's that's the only leap you need to make. Not that not sending an email
0: to say, like, how do I get involved or how do I join the board? It's how can I help? Absolutely. That feels like a a bite-sized thing, something that you really can do, something tangible to move forward. I I love that. I don't know if you like this term, and I'm going rogue now because I, as you're talking, I'm thinking of so many exciting things I want to ask you, but um, the the term is imposter syndrome. I don't know if you like that term, but in terms of when you started that job at Cadillac, like hearing about your journey and hearing about that jump seems like such a huge shift, right, from agency to in-house, which we know is so different, from essentially different industries you know did you have any of those feelings of like can I do this job and if so maybe not If not amazing like yes you go like but if you did and if so how did you kind of overcome them how did you feel confident to do this completely new and different role um at that point in your career
1: I absolutely believe in imposter syndrome. I don't have any problem with the phrase because I think it perfectly describes what, what I, I mean, I would argue all of us go through. Maybe some of us fake it really well and say that we don't get it. I, I am skeptical of that. Um, I think as human beings, we, we get it. And maybe as women, it can be more pronounced in many ways, especially if you're in an environment in which you're on the margins, right? Um, I absolutely felt imposter syndrome going into the job at Cadillac. I was one of the youngest executives that they had ever named. I think I was 31 years old. Everybody who was at my level was at least 10 to 15 years older and had been at the company for a long time. I came into a situation where I immediately started managing a team with much more experience than me, right? That knew the business, knew the industry, knew what they did really well. I would say that the only thing that can be done to overcome imposter syndrome (laughs) is to say what you don't know and to ask the questions that you don't know the answers to without fear of looking stupid. Or even if you have the fear of looking stupid to ask them anyway. And I was really open with all the people that I, I inherited onto my team. I remember sitting down with one of them and saying, I don't know what you know, you're smarter than me. You're more experienced than me. All I know is that I'm here in a position to help you succeed. And that means I'll remove the obstacles for you when I can, or I'll lift you up when I can, tell me what you need. That's all I know to do, but I'm not gonna tell you what to do because I do not know more than you do. And I feel that that has served me well in building trust during my career at all my jobs. I've tried to take that approach because I'm almost always the outsider or the newcomer coming into an industry. I think it what doesn't work is, and I did make some mistakes early on to, to, um, to be uh, candid, is to come into a place, guns ablazing, telling everybody what's wrong and what needs to be fixed and how they've done things wrong and how can things possibly work this way. And I never think that that's a good approach. There's so many reasons why things work a certain way or why decisions were made. Coming in to blow it all up with condescension or arrogance is never going to suit you coming in and saying like, I really don't know what's going on. I don't understand this. Help me understand so I can help you. The whole different approach, right? But do I still feel imposter syndrome? Yes, to this day. I mean, I sit at Herman Miller while they're talking about the manufacturing of one of our $2,000 office chairs. And I'm like, I have so much to learn. And what am I doing? And why did they hire me? And why did they pay me what they pay me? I don't understand. Um, but I just, you know, to, to battle back from that, is to ask the questions and to continue learning. There's like no other way.
0: Absolutely, I, I love that. I think that's really important and so hard to do. But also to remember, like as I'm hearing you you talk about it, to remember, like oh, but I do have expertise that they also rely on, right? Like you don't know anything about furniture, but you know about PR and marketing, so yeah, that's <laughs> <gonna> be, <laughs> that is uh, you know that that's, that's going to be very valuable valuable to them. As you have navigated this career and hearing about all the, you know, shifts you've made. Do you have advice on those conversations, which, you know, you don't really talk about it that much like the difficult conversations of leaving a job, moving on to the next job. Um, How have you navigated some of those because you've had a few. um, And I know there's, you don't really get a lot to like prepare us for that I'd love to hear about some of your experiences.
1: You know, it's it's funny. This is the one place where I'll be like, Julie, I don't have an issue, and I'm not afraid of the tough conversations. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, that has always helped, and that's probably helped with the imposter syndrome, to be honest, too. Right? Because I'm I'm like, okay, I'll just I'll just have this. I I don't mind looking a little silly. I don't mind having this conversation that's going to make us both uncomfortable. I think when when people are considering a change in in jobs, like getting the timing right is the hardest part, right? the timing changes everything. If it's good timing, then the conversation is gonna go so differently. And so not to deflect to a different answer, but I think it's more about finding the right timing and trusting your instincts. Because if you do that, I don't think the conversation will be as hard. But if you, your instinct is saying it's time for a change and you let it drag on for a long time, I think it changes the tenor and the nature of that conversation. and makes it much harder for both parties. Uh, in in all of my switches, I trusted my gut. There was many there were many reasons to stay at, at Cadillac, and my gut said it was time for a change. Right? It wasn't as simple as the the brand was moving back to Detroit and I wanted to stay in New York. It's never that simple, right? But there were many reasons on paper or from the outside. I remember friends telling me you should just stay, and I said even for financial gain, I don't think it's worth it because my gut is saying it's not right for me now. That made that conversation so much easier because there was no disingenuousness. There was just clarity on my part. So I just had a clear conversation at that point. So I would say for me, not to pivot to a different answer to your question, I think timing and figuring out how to trust your instinct when change is needed is actually the most important thing.
0: I think that is the answer to the question. I mean, it's so helpful because also even just to take into consideration when you do have those conversations, how the timing might affect the people that you're talking to and transitioning from. I think that is something we almost, you know, when you, when you're changing jobs, like obviously you think about yourself the most, that makes sense. But if you can have that conversation and take into consideration some of the you know, concerns and issues that are kind of going to happen and at least be willing to talk through them, not that you're going to stay at your job. I think that can be really, really helpful and can just change the whole, exit and any, you know, discomfort as well, if as much as that's possible. And I'll just
1: add this too. I had a really good executive coach tell me once, um, when I was struggling with a decision around a job, he said to me, Melody, you cannot get on with the rest of your life and career. If you don't take that step now, right. He was like the best way to move into the next phase is to move into the next phase.
0: (laughs) And I thought that was really valuable. That's great. That's a great piece of advice. I love stackable yeah. advice. that's that is that's <laughs> so good. We talk a lot about the power of mentorship on this podcast. In New York Wiki, it's really important to the organization. and we love hearing our guest stories of their own mentors, um, who has impacted them in their career, and you know anyone you have been mentoring. Can you tell me a little bit about people who' supported you through your career, who some of your mentors are, and maybe some ways they've helped to guide you?
1: yeah absolutely. um the first the first sort of very seminal mentor was the the man who eventually became the president of Cadillac and hired me over. Bob Ferguson was his name, uh, is his name. And Bob always saw way more potential in me than I saw in myself. I just remember being very confused about what he saw and why he had so much faith in me. Um and we we first started working together on the two thousand and eight Olympic Games in Beijing and we actually spent 3 months in Switzerland at IOC headquarters and then moved over to Beijing together on the ground during a series of of crises i don't people don't really remember that that far back about the olympic games anymore but those olympics were pretty fraught um and and bob was my first big champion and advocate who just kept saying like she, you can do this, Melody, and I'm going to tell everybody that you can do this and they're going to believe me and, and bring you along for the ride. And he just kept putting me in situations where I didn't think I was going to survive or thrive, but he did. And then I would. <laughs> and then we, we would keep going. Um, and so I would say that that was my first really meaningful mentor Bob and I are still very close, talk all the time. He always gives me really sound advice. Uh, my, my kids call him Uncle Bob. And we oh we see that I know it's like we're very close yeah and <laughs> his wife is is Aunt Deb and we we see them um, every year with my kids so that's been a really meaningful relationship for me um, and I would say a, a, another mentor of mine um, was a a man named Uva Ellinghaus who was the CMO at Cadillac so even after Bob left the position uh, at Cadillac to to move into another part of GM Uva became my boss and. Uva was is one of those great visionary brand marketers who had been at BMW and um, and and many other places before. That really taught me about luxury marketing and brand strategy, brand led marketing. Uva and I are also really close. We were just making arrangements to have dinner in October when he comes to New York. And again, it was one of the it, it, and that sort of mentorship was a little bit different. Uh, while he was just as much of a champion and an advocate for me, Uva trusted me in a way that um, Bob also did, but it was a it was a sort of trust where he um, really just sort of implicitly knew or, or just let me do what I needed to do. It's not that he didn't come back behind me and correct me if needed or gave me feedback when I needed it, um, but he very much trusted my instincts and let me fly and gave me a ton of autonomy, never like stood over my shoulder telling me what to do. Um, and so in in both of those areas, I think, Also having, um, this is really important, I think it's worth saying, I think having a male mentor in a very male-dominated industry was also incredibly helpful. Um, Having someone who was part of the majority actually was valuable in a very different way. And I'm not saying that's more valuable than having a female mentor in that situation, but it just had a different, there was a different perspective to it. So in both of those cases, I've been really fortunate. And then outside of work, I have a number of of people that I I really look up to um, that help me outside. And I would say that um, a couple of those people worth mentioning are Karen Wong, the former deputy director of the new museum and Wen Zhou who is currently the CEO of Philip Lim, the fashion brand. Both of those women um, offer me both solicited and unsolicited advice. I call them the aunties, Um, they're, they're both Chinese women as well. So, and we, we call everybody a um, but both of those women have been so seminal in just helping me think through situations and career transitions and professional versus personal and all of that. And so that's just four people that I've told you about, but there've been so many along the way, um, that have gotten me to this place that I just told you about, which I never expected to find myself in.
0: That's fabulous. It's a it's a whole village, but it's really you're so lucky to have those incredible mentors. Have you taken on any mentees? Are there people that um you have taken on beyond, you know, I'm sure you meet lots of young people who want advice, you give career advice, but anyone who you kind of officially been the mentor a mentor to? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I've done it both through corporate mentorship programs as well as unofficially, you know, just a generally a young woman that I work with um, in some capacity. I've kept in touch with some, some group of young women in almost every job that I've had. I can go all the way back to Hill and Knowlton and to the women that I worked with there. Maybe it's a little self-serving, but it's also really exciting to see where these people go. It is so exciting, right? I mean, like one of the women who worked for me at Hill and Knowlton back in the day, who was like maybe one or two years into her career is now you know a director level corporate communications person, uh, at Hasbro, the toy company and and had a great career at Pepsi uh, right before that. It's just really fun to watch people fly. And I, you know, early on I had, I had, it was, it was Bob actually, Bob tell me that there's no greater pleasure in seeing someone become really successful, maybe even sometimes more successful than you. He was like, that's actually the goal. You actually want to see somebody become more successful than you and fly higher. Just like, you know, my immigrant parents who came to the United States, they wanted to see my brother and I do better than them, right? And it's not different in the professional setting. If you have a good mentor, a good one wants to see you do better. Uh, And so for me, that's highly, highly rewarding. And a lot of these people have now just become friends, right? It has gone from like a mentor-mentee relationship to one of peers or friendship. And I think it's a great thing. I think, you know, sometimes it's hard to balance, like we talk about this balance, right? Of work and home and boards and oh and here's someone asking for 30 minutes of your advice right I think you have to say yes to the people who ask you for advice first I think those people have to come first no matter how well you know them for me that's the most important thing I will say maybe maybe to my detriment we'll we'll never say no to someone just saying can I have a coffee or can I have 30 minutes because where would I be if nobody took
0: that call Absolutely. You got to pay it forward. No, it's such a good point. Cause it's like, you got that advice. And then I think a lot of times it does, that cycle does stop when someone gets, you know, very busy they're like, okay, I, can't, I cannot do it. Um, a lot of the listeners to this podcast are young. I we were, I was just looking at some of the demographics and we have a lot of women who are just entering their career, um, graduating from school or very, very early career. One thing I was thinking of is like, do you have any advice for someone about how to be a good mentee. Like what are some of the things that you can do if you want to be whether a formal or informal mentee or if you're just asking someone right for, the, for their time, do you have any advice for, um, you know, for people who want to be the best mentee possible or who want to really be able to engage like key mentors?
1: You know, I found with the mentees that I've had that the ones who ask me the most specific questions and the ones who want to game out a scenario are the most likely to then go and and probably apply some, some version of, of advice given or, uh, you know, a, a perspective to their situation. You know, I'm always happy to talk generally about my experiences and my background and um, what I think, you know, what my general advice is on any sort of situation. But I love it when someone comes to me and says, okay, here's my pickle, you know, let's talk about the specifics, let's game it out. You be this person, I'll be this person and let's like really work on it. I appreciate that kind of work. I think it takes a lot of effort on the part of the mentee to come prepared with that kind of information and is willing to put themselves in a sort of role play situation. But I always see that sort of situation being the most fruitful. I also really appreciate mentees who close the loop later because a lot of the times you have those who come to you with the advice and then you never find out like what happened. And sometimes I'll text them and say like, oh, how'd it go with your boss, right? Like how'd that conversation go? Or did you negotiate that raise? It's always the ones who are so excited to tell me afterwards that it worked or it went great or like here. I also really appreciate that as a mentor. Like, let me know if I'm being a good mentor so I can be a better one for the next mentee, right? So I'd say those two things make a great mentee.
0: I think that's great. Yeah. I not, not that this is my interview, but I would also say if you were to ask me, you know, the questions, asking questions, coming prepared with questions, having a specific scenario, not just being like, because some people, I mean, you sound very similar to me. Like I want to help. I love to meet people. I love to have a coffee. Like I don't see that as a chore, but I do think people who don't love it as much. It's like, it does feel painful when you sit down with someone and they're like, so tell me about yourself, like to, you know, a, a mentor type person that's like, uh, why are we here? So I think even if you don't really have a reason for it, honestly, even if you really just do want to like pick their brain, quote unquote, having specific questions or some kind of made up scenario um, really, really helps. I think that's excellent, excellent advice. And we'll just help you like get the best mentors, key contacts possible. Um, I think I think that's fantastic. Well, we like to ask our guests what we call our classically annoying interview questions. Essentially, (laughs) so so what these are, uh, you know, I get to interview amazing women who are mostly executives are very far along in their career and probably haven't interviewed for a job or a job like this that asks these kind of questions in a long time. So we like to turn the tables and ask some of these questions. So these are those like you know, questions they're asking at an interview that really, like, they don't want necessarily the real real answer. There's something they're looking for, (laughs) right? It's like, you're looking for you to say something specific, but they're not going to tell you. Um, And I invite our guests to either answer these authentically, or you can answer it how you think people should answer them, like what you think would be the most helpful in an interview that also is uh can can be an approach um so we have a few of them for you and the first one is what is your biggest weakness <laughs> That's so funny um i know that the uh
1: the i think the traditional guidance on this question is to answer with a strength um that that seems like a weakness I don't know, I'm I i I'm highly transparent and I just answer with my real weakness. Like I would tell you right now that my weakness is that I over torque on politics. Like I see politics everywhere. I see the political, um, I see who, like what two executives are not getting along and what that means. And I overthink and over index on politics and sometimes to my detriment, right? Now, in a sense, I think a good interviewer will say, well, that's great. She's at least aware of politics and knows that where there are people, there are politics. And there is a degree of navigating politics that comes with the territory for an executive. So I would like people to see that, but I would never say that. But I would say very honestly, sometimes I'm a little too aware of what's going on in a room to where it can be paralyzing to me. And sometimes I've got to set that aside. So that I can get to a conclusion that's not influenced by how two people feel about one another or what they're fighting about.
0: That's almost like a superpower, but like not necessarily a great one. Like that you are kind of like hearing—it's like yeah. someone was super hearing, right? You're like hearing things that are not wanting to be said. But I can see that it would definitely, um, you know, give some some unique. Unique challenges. Um, that's a great yeah. answer. That is a great answer. You had that, you had that ready. You had that ready. Uh, okay, here's, <laughs> here's another one. Where do you see yourself in five years?
1: My you already said you don't question. have,
0: you already, like you said specifically, I do not have a five-year plan. So I am don't. asking the tough questions.
1: Yeah, I know. So I, I mean, I have been asked this in interviews and I always say, I do not believe in five-year plans. We don't know where the world's going to be in five years, much less our industry, our company, um, where the organization at this company is going to be. To answer that without the context of all of the rest of the macro, I think it's foolhardy. I believe in ambition and I believe in vision. I believe in charting a path for yourself. I personally don't have five-year plans and I don't like to talk about where I'll be in five years because um, for me, my career has been a series of 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 people believing in me and putting me in the right places. And that had nothing to do with what I wanted over the next five years.
0: Still a great answer. Even if the answer is <laughs> just, no. Just being honest. Still <laughs> a great answer. You were like, didn't even answer, but it's great. I'm like, okay, you're hired. Fabulous. Like we don't know where and it is true. Like, I mean, that I is like a key to this, right? Like, we don't know where industry is gonna be. Things are changing. There's technologies that don't exist. Like you can, you know, say, say all of that, but I I still liked it, even even if the answer is I do not know and do not care to uh, <laughs> to discuss. <laughs> and then we always like to ask. So you know, a lot of companies are asking these totally wacky interview questions. Again, like there is some goal, there's something they want to get to with you, but like you don't know what it is, right? Like, and so it's a game, um, which to me is like, is this the best use of our interview time? But we're gonna we're gonna go <laughs> for it. So this is. If you had a choice between two superpowers, so this is if you're interviewing at HubSpot, one of their funky interview questions. Uh-oh. If you had a choice between two superpowers, being invisible or flying, which would you choose? <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> I mean, what does this have to do literally with any job? But please, please, let, let's dissect. <laughs> I mean, this probably
1: ties back to the politics thing. I, I choose to be invisible so I could be in any room for any meeting to understand the full context, the politics, the history, the interpersonal dynamics. Like I would, I just, I, I always talk about how I'd love to be a fly on the wall for some sort of, you know, super senior level meeting where a decision is made and handed down and the rest of us have to all execute it without like the full context of it. So <laughs> in a professional setting, I would like to be invisible so I could go into any meeting that I wanted to. <laughs>
0: Perfect. Perfect answer. I mean, perfect. You tied it into the careers. You tied it into the workplace. It's a question that doesn't even make any sense. Somehow you wrapped it all in. Oh my gosh. you. This is why you've had such a successful career. You, you nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> We have reached our lightning round. So I'm going to ask you just a few quick questions. we talked at length about so many amazing things. I really, I really have so appreciated hearing your thoughts. And I think so much of what you've said today is really for listeners, like very actionable. They can take it away with them and apply it to their own jobs. So I love talking, you know, having conversations like this and and helping our listeners as well. So these are going to be the quick, the quick answers. I'm just going to quickly ask you um, best job you've ever had.
1: Worked in an Irish pub for a year in Austin, Texas, and I really loved it. It was so much fun.
0: That's so fun. That's so different than anything you're doing. I love that so much. (laughs) What is the worst job you've ever had?
1: Oh, I went door to door selling office supplies and I think I lasted, yeah, it was a small interlude before
0: PR. I think I lasted six days. (laughs) Pretty pretty good actually. I'm like, that sounds like a, a, a long time. Did you, was it in Texas?
1: Yeah, it was one of those things where they sort of tricked me. Like they they made it sound um, like a, a desk sales job of some sort, but no, you had to go door to door selling office products out of a catalog. It
0: was oh terrible. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. that, that's bad. That's just, that is worst job. What is the best <laughs> career advice you've ever received? What's the best piece of career advice you've received? Don't worry about anything, but making those around you successful. And have you ever received like a truly bad piece of career advice, like something someone told you that you're like, I'm so glad I didn't follow that?
1: No, nothing comes to mind. I probably <laughs> if I did, I just ignored it.
0: <laughs> Good. <laughs> Usually it's like maybe something you heard you you've heard in the workplace, but I'm glad you have you have avoided it. And well, I mean, we could I could I could go on for a long time about leaning in. I do hate
1: that, but I'm sure you've heard that before and you are aware of the discourse around it since Sheryl Sandberg wrote that book. But I do have an allergic reaction to people telling me to lean in.
0: And what do you, I mean, I also have a lot to say about lean in and like, <laughs> I think now we're, we're having this conversation more than ever, but what, we're, what is your kind of um, general objection? to? In summary, what's your general objection to lean in? I think when you tell a woman to lean in, you're assuming that it's all up to her.
1: And we started this conversation by talking about how so much of this is with, just outside of a woman's power. In the workplace, right, has to do with policy and infrastructure and childcare and healthcare and privilege. I have a husband who does so much, but many don't, right? Many don't even have a spouse or a partner that they can lean on. And like to me, leaning in was it was it it was a a message that resonated because nobody at that level was 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 pushing uh, an agenda like that, and it felt refreshing. But it just neglected to acknowledge how much is needed for a woman to be able to lean in.
0: And I, I it's so interesting because I do think like around that timing of lean in is when we here at New York Wiki and on this podcast started having this conversation of not work-life balance, of just like trying to find some kind of day-to-day when I, maybe the word should be sanity, not balance in your life, um, you know, and, and kind of the ebbs and flows of it all. I really think it was like a direct reaction to lean in. I know a lot of, you know, women talk about leaning out and things like that, but I do, but it was just kind of exactly like you're saying, like, let's have the conversation about this is actually not what we want to be doing or should be doing or are all capable to do of doing Um, and it's come a long way it's very very interesting and I think it's I mean clearly so much has evolved throughout the pandemic too in terms of women in the workplace uh, you know just just and and how we're proceeding and all of the you know conversations around like work like a man when you really, maybe it's just like work like yourself, right? A woman who is um, in this environment. But no, I I think that is very, very, very uh, relevant to that question of worst career advice. And then what's just a really memorable office moment? So this can be something good, bad, just something that you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this happened in the office um, because it was great or because it was terrible.
1: Well, I mean, this is probably a little bit unfair, but I mean, I would say that my, if you call it an office moment, if this qualifies as an answer, being at the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing was like a pretty cool professional moment. I mean, I was there to work, right? But sitting there in the audience in the Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing, watching like the display of pageantry and pride was pretty freaking cool. So I would say that that's probably one of my 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 favorite memories. Do you mean office literally? Do I have to
0: answer that? No, that's, I mean, what does office even mean anymore? I'm like, as you were saying that, I'm like, you know, we've always talked about this, even pre-pandemic, we've had this question talking to guests about their most memorable office moment. And I was like, wait, and as you're saying that my brain, I'm like, are you even, do you go to an office anymore? Are you even going to an office? Like (laughs) what is office? Yes. Work professional moment. I mean, that sounds like an incredible one. It definitely counts. It definitely counts. Before we wrap up, I would love for you to tell our listeners where they can find you if you're anywhere on social media that you'd like to be found, followed, connected with. Sure.
1: I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Um, I should be pretty easy to find on there. And then on Twitter, my handle is Mellie M-E-L-L-Y 126. Sorry, had the username since high school.
0: (laughs) Um, And... I think that's it. The
1: rest of my channels are private, but those in, on those two, I'd love to hear from people.
0: That's great. Is that like your aim? Like your aim handle? Like your AOL username? I think, I think it is.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for knowing what that is.
0: Ah, I love that. That's original. That is just original. I like. I like consistency. I like that. I think we're, <laughs> pick a screen. Pick a screen name and just go with it forever. That's fabulous. Well, Melody, I it has been so, so, so fun chatting with you, having time to catch up, and I really, really appreciate um, everything. So thank you so much. And um, I hope people will connect with you and reach out and ask questions, not only about your career, but about New York Wiki, being on the board, and um, how to get more involved. Thank you, Julie. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Heard, presented by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie Hockeiser ilkovich Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grize, Mandy Carr, Shania Anderson, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to everyone at New York Wiki for helping us and for supporting our show. For more information about Women Heard, go to nywiki.org podcast. That's n-y-w-i-c-i podcast.